This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, it's Adam. Just a reminder that we're on a break for the next couple weeks, and Rico Daily will be back with new episodes in the new year. In the meantime, here's one of our favorites from this year. Thanks. How many times have you gone to click on a link only to find out that the page or even the entire website no longer exists? Maybe you're replying to a job or trying to show a friend a tweet or looking for a delicious recipe and the page is just dead, gone, never to be found again. Experts describe this process as link rot, and they say it can be a serious problem when it comes to preserving historical records, especially since so much of what we do now is online. One of these experts is Claire Stanton. Claire is a member of the Library Innovation Lab at Harvard Law School. And earlier this year, she worked on a study for the Columbia Journalism Review that examined the problem of link rot. She joins us now to tell us more. Hey, Claire, thanks for being here. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So tell us, what exactly is link rot? So link rot is an umbrella term for what happens when you're surfing the web and you click on a link and the content that opens up on the other end either is completely gone or it has changed in a way that you weren't expecting. A lot of users of the web are familiar with that dreaded 404 page not found error. And that's the prime example of link rot. In a lot of ways, it's part of the design of the internet. One of the most powerful things about the web is that it's a place where the most up-to-date information can exist and where content creators can be in control of what they're putting out into the world. It allows people to be constantly improving their websites and changing the way that they have users navigate their websites. There's also things like new internet protocols that happen that change the way a website works, which can break links. Sometimes people sell the domains that they manage or they just stop paying for them, which causes them to go down. There's all sorts of reasons. And again, it's kind of just a, an inevitable part of the internet in a lot of ways. Our team talks a lot about the dilemma of the internet being that like the thing that you want to disappear, like that really embarrassing photo that you took in 2004, is always going to stick around and be somewhere on the web. But the thing that you actually need is going to be lost forever. Right. We've all seen it. Websites get taken off the internet all the time. And most of the time, it doesn't seem like a big deal. Like maybe I put up a picture of my dogs and they get really upset with me. They, they don't like it. They say that's the worst picture of us. Take it down. And I will. But in other cases, it could result in a loss of critical information. How does link rot affect the average internet user in ways they might not understand or know? In a lot of ways, the average internet user will experience link rot in a way that's kind of an inconvenience in the short term. You know, you'll find another way to find that job posting or find another recipe to make that evening. But there are really serious implications for the long term in our historical record if our base references and information keeps disappearing before it can be preserved effectively for historians in the future or even just regular citizens in the future to look at. So especially in this era of really rampant misinformation and 
in a lot of ways, oversaturation of information, citations and source referencing is super important. Along those lines, you mentioned in your study that hyperlink loss is particularly dangerous for areas where there are written records, where researchers rely on things that have been written down. One of those professions is mine, journalism. And it used to be that newspapers were kept in a box or on microfiche in the library, and that institution protected them. But that's no longer quite the case. So what's at stake for the news industry in the 21st century? Yeah, I think there's two layers of that. There's the actual preservation of the news material itself. So the articles that folks are writing, and then there's even a second layer of the references that journalists are making, which uh, in a lot of ways, newsrooms can have easier control over the content that they're putting out. But that secondary layer, because the web is so distributed, can be really fragile in and of itself. Never mind how expensive it is to even archive your own content. Um, so there's this concept of the loss of your reference material, which is so important for journalism. There are things like negative SEO impacts. So if a newsroom is working off of a business model or just a content distribution model that relies somewhat on a search engine, having a lot of dead links on your website can really affect your page rankings. And then there are things like malicious hijacking of web links that appear in newspapers. So a lot of times when a web link goes dead, it's kind of just like, ugh, that's not there anymore. I'm very upset. But sometimes someone can take over that domain and put, you know, an online casino there or some more nefarious content. And you're not giving us anecdotal examples here. Earlier this year, you and your colleagues looked at links in New York Times articles going back as far as 1996, when the paper first launched its website. What did you find? Yeah, so we were really lucky to work with the New York Times, who uh, their digital team put together a data set of every outward-facing hyperlink that they had used on their website since it launched. So we didn't look at any pages that were controlled by the Times themselves, but it was all of these reference links that we were talking about. That data set encompassed over 500,000 New York Times articles, and it was almost 2 million hyperlinks that were pointing outside of that website. Unfortunately, we found that one in four of those links was completely inaccessible, and it got worse over time. So, you know, of all of the links that were published in articles from 2018, only 6% of those had rotted. But if you go back to 2008, it was 43% of those links. And then all the way back to 1998, 72% of hyperlinks that were used in the New York Times were gone. So that's a pretty pervasive problem, unfortunately, in our paper of record. So why did you choose the New York Times for the study? They, as an institution, have a really strong commitment to their own internal archive. Uh, so they work really hard to make sure that New York Times articles don't go down, don't have 404s. And there are folks on their team who are really interested in these types of issues. And that attitude really highlights our larger scale point, which is that even the most rigorous of newsrooms who represent a gold standard and have a lot of resources and are very interested in solving problems like these still experience a really high level of link rot. And that points to kind of an inherent issue in the field that we hope would prompt kind of a discussion to build new frameworks around these issues and to help people in this field. And did this study or any other research shed any light on which kinds of websites in particular are most likely to turn up a dead link? Yeah, one of the most kind of interesting findings for me was the volatility of .gov websites. You think of 
for example, whitehouse.gov as being such a stable website because it's run by the U.S. government, who theoretically is a pretty longstanding institution and is, you know, keeping up with things. And when we looked at that, it kind of became more clear because there's, again, this built-in cyclical nature of people who are running those websites. So anytime a new presidential administration comes in, they are in charge of whitehouse.gov. So they probably are changing the structure of the website. They're certainly changing the content of the website. So ironically, the things that seemed most uh, set in stone ended up being really volatile. A more kind of qualitative finding that we had was talking to journalists who had been covering the pandemic were talking about how difficult it was to deal with link rot, looking at things like COVID statistics dashboards. So if a municipal government is tracking COVID cases in their city or in their state, they want to have the most up-to-date information. But a lot of people who are writing about trends and how things have changed over the pandemic had a hard time finding that historical information, even going back a week or a month. So those kinds of things tend to be really volatile. And again, kind of just the nature of the thing more than anyone being malicious or irresponsible. Did you find the same problem at other high levels of government, say Congress or the Supreme Court? So this study, interestingly, is is almost a sister study to one done previously in 2014 by one of my co-authors looking at link rot in Supreme Court opinions. So when a judge issues an opinion on a particular court case, obviously citations are very important and on occasion those link to the web as well. And unfortunately, there were similar findings. There was a really high rate of rot in websites that were being pointed to by U.S. Supreme Court justices, which isn't a great look. Sure. And in the short term, it might seem like kind of annoying when you get a 404 or don't find the page you want to find. But the Internet is still young and it's going to stick around. We're only going to be storing more and more historical information there. So let's say 100 years from now, do you think that link rot means that we won't have a clear picture of this moment in history for the next 10, 20 years? The internet is absolutely changing the landscape when it comes to the historical record. And there are tons of libraries and archives and museums who have been working on this question of translating archival practices to the internet space basically since the internet existed. The Library of Congress has an amazing web archiving team. And of course, there's uh, the Internet Archive, which also has the goal of kind of capturing the web at a large scale. But it's also clear that in some cases, like in digital newsrooms and courtrooms, just the pace of the internet is beating out those preservation efforts in this really specific way. That's kind of shifting the shared responsibility down to writers and journalists themselves to preemptively help with this archiving of important links and the historical record. Because, yeah, at this point, even though there are a lot of really smart minds working on this, the pace of change on the web is outpacing a lot of our kind of traditional archival practices. And there is this threat of losing a big portion of the historical record. And you also mentioned a more malicious side of this. I think you called it content drift when one hyperlink points to something that's different than what it originally pointed to, maybe a lot different, like a gambling website or like you said, more nefarious content. Does that mean that there's actually a black market for dead hyperlinks? Uh, Yeah, unfortunately, there is some evidence of that. There has been reporting about some hyperlinks that have gone dead in publications like The Times that have been replaced with exactly those types of things, more not suitable for work content, let's just say. 
And again, I think a lot of this comes back to the search engine optimization world where having your website linked to by an important place like the Times uh, is good for you. So there's some incentive to try and find websites that have outlinks from important places that have stopped being paid for or are now kind of empty and replacing that information with your website to try to get some of that SEO juice. So right now we don't really have a link police or necessarily an authority that can stop this problem. Is there anything publishers can do to kind of make themselves less vulnerable to getting hijacked? The first step to all of this is kind of creating a partnership between the folks who are making this content, putting it on the web, uh, using hyperlinks in this important way, and people who have a background as information professionals who have been thinking about how archival practices can translate to the internet age. There are a lot of questions to answer, like when should a link be archived and frozen in time versus when should it be a live link to point users to the most up-to-date information? There's really a need to just build frameworks and an understanding across the spectrum of content creators and writers to know about this problem, be proactive in ways that they can be about either archiving or using more stable links to the extent that that's possible, and training in some of these mindsets and practices of archives and libraries for writers themselves so they can be more protected against the the downsides of, of link rot, even if they happen at some level. And as I understand it, you and your colleagues at Harvard's Library Innovation Lab have taken matters into your own hands. Can you tell us a little bit about your efforts? Sure. Uh, yeah, we're trying to, to help in the effort for sure. The angle that we're coming at it from is there really needs to be technology to back up those frameworks once they're written. So once that critical thinking has been done about where stop gaps can happen and how newsrooms can work on this internally, um, they need to actually have the technology to archive the web and show it to their readers and users in a, in a real way. So we have built a tool called PermaCC, which has been around in the, the legal sphere for a long time, uh, which allows folks to create a capture of a specific web page and replace a live link with an archived link. We uh, add that content to our collection at the Harvard Law School Library, and we have a network of academic libraries that work with us to do that kind of backing up so that things are preserved into the future. We're very excited about that work, and we are looking to collaborate with newsrooms specifically to, to build technologies and try to help in this problem a little bit on the next step. Because it's complicated. Just as the web changes all the time, the way that you capture it and archive it is changing all the time. Well, I think we can all agree that the internet would be better if it worked perfectly all the time, but this is an ambitious goal that we'll have to keep working towards. Claire, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to Rico Daily. My name is Adam Clark Estes. This episode was produced by Alan Rodriguez Espinosa and engineered by Melissa Ponce from Hemlock Creek Productions. Let us know what you want to learn more about. Email us at recodaily at recode.net.